This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Leanna Tan, here to give you some of Matt's best tidbits to help you live healthier, happier lives. So today I want to bring up a concern that I have with society. I was at church a couple weeks ago when the teacher did a kind of object lesson and she asked anyone in the room who had been bullied to stand up. And it was kind of saddening to watch as nearly the entire room stood up. And then it was even more amazing because she then asked anyone who had ever bullied someone else to stand up and nearly everyone stayed standing and even more people stood up. And I just think this is sad. Obviously, this is a problem in our society and I feel like it's fostered in our culture, this idea of shaming and bullying. You see it all the time in the media And even from our leaders and our idols, these people who we're supposed to look up to, I think too often media uses public shaming to try to correct or coerce society into a specific belief system, if you will. You see politicians verbally bully each other across the pulpit, and people just love to watch who comes out on top, who can say the cruelest thing to the other person. Or in cases like people like Monica Lewinsky or Michael Jackson, these celebrities or public figures who make one wrong move, and we think we are justified as a society to publicly humiliate them and shame them and completely ruin their reputation for the rest of their lives. What does that teach the rising generations? What messages have we been sending on how to treat others? Apparently not great ones because we see that type of behavior seeping into our own homes as well. So let's put a stop to this. Today, we're going to talk all about this issue of shaming and bullying, and I've got some great experts to help us out. The first interview I'll play for you is with Jonathan Fast. He talks with Matt about this idea of shaming, bullying, and violence that has been ingrained in our culture. He's an associate professor at the Wurzweiler School of Social Work at Yeshiva University, and he joins us to give us some insight into this this shaming, um, I guess, approach that we use here in the United States. Dr. Jonathan Fast, welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. Nice to be here. Great to have you today, uh, Dr. Fast. Is Talk about shame. I know it seems like in the United States we're really, we really believe in this concept of shaming. Is, are, we, are we abnormal as a society, or, or do we do it more than others? Talk about that. Well, I think there are shame-oriented cultures, and there are um, not shame-oriented cultures. And we're more of a shaming culture. But I think uh, people all around the world use shame to keep other people in line. And so this is better understood if we talk about what shame is. Yeah, define that for us. Yeah. So I like to think of shame as involving groups. And there's one thing that people want more than anything, it's to be part of a group, whether the group is simply a couple or a family, um, you know, or a club or a school. We want to be part of groups. And shame is the emotion we experience when we risk losing our membership in the group um, or when we aspire to join a group of a higher status and we're rejected. Mm. So an example of that might be joining some fancy country club and not getting in. Yeah. An example of staying in our family would be, you know, if we commit a crime or in a very uh, orthodox kind of family, if you marry outside the faith, you run the possibility of actually being excluded from the family. And it's considered enormously shameful. It's an, that is an interesting way to see it, isn't it? Because it, then it's it's group oriented. It's your desire to belong and be a part of a bigger thing. Absolutely, and we could say that guilt is the opposite. Guilt is what goes on inside us. So if we have a strong sense of guilt, it's going to stop us from committing a crime. On the other hand, if we don't have a strong sense of guilt, we might commit a crime and feel fine about it until it's discovered by other people, and then we experience shame. Uh, I was just looking at an article about Bill Cosby, yeah, and it might be his experience that while he was involved in these uh, antisocial acts, he was not experiencing particular guilt, but now that it's come out, he's probably 
deeply shamed by it. Mm. And so in that, I guess that shame is a, it's a normal byproduct, I guess, of, of doing something out of sorts, but uh, that that won't that won't benefit me in getting into or keep or you know it might impact me in my friend group or my relationship group, but is shame something that I can also kind of thrust on people? Sure, and that's called bullying. Yeah, uh, if you have someone working for you who's not doing their job, you can say you know um, straighten up or you're out of work, and yeah. that's a kind of it's a kind of bullying, but it's not a bad kind of bullying. Um, so I guess we really shouldn't call it bullying. So, for example, when a mother tells her two- or three-year-old child that he can't sit at the grown-up table until he stops finger-painting with his with his mashed teeth, <laughs> that's a good kind of shaming. Yeah. Um, and for an adult, it might be uh, if you are drink too much at a party, you know, and you decide you can drive yourself home and you're weaving all over the road and you get a DUI and spend the night in jail, that, again, is a very helpful kind of shaming. Um, so it, it's useful to think of this as that there's toxic shaming and healthy shaming. And healthy shaming is what keeps us in line as a culture. It's what keeps everybody doing the things they need to do to remain in groups. Yeah. And, and I guess it's just a byproduct. It, it's just a repercussion of how we live, or right? So it's kind of society pushing back or the bigger institution pushing back on, uh, I guess, inappropriate or unacceptable behavior. Right. And then we change our ideas of what is acceptable behavior as time passes. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's almost – it's the institution's way of correcting the individual. Right, and I, I believe in there are uh, Sylvan Tompkins, who was a, a psychologist who lived a, uh, about 50 years ago, also wrote about this a lot, but this kind of thing is probably inborn in us and probably remains because it's such a valuable emotion in terms of keeping our culture together, because human beings really can't function in isolation like yeah. some animals. Yeah. In fact, others uh, talk about it. I think Sue Johnson and others talk about how this need to be accepted is, is you know, one of the universal needs of a human. We want to be included in these groups, and even at the highest level we can. It ensures our longevity, right? That's right. And if we're not ex- – you know, if people who go off by themselves are either religious adepts who are doing it intentionally – or people who just can't bear the possibility of experiencing shame. Mm. An example of that might be um, there was a stereotype of Vietnam War veterans after the Vietnam War that they would sort of go off and live in uh, tents in the woods. You know, and yeah. perhaps, perhaps that was because of the shame they had uh, they had accumulated during the war. Isn't that interesting? So, so that's in, and they may have felt that, and then there, there was also maybe talk about this idea. You call it like weaponized shame. Is that part of the toxic shaming? Because during the Vietnam yeah. War, there was a lot of toxic shaming going on. I assume that's right. Because remember, I mean, we've gotten much better as a society about um, about supporting our veterans. Yeah, but in, during the Vietnam War, veterans were shamed. By the uh, by, the dominant culture. Yeah, the baby. You were the baby killers. You were the. Oh yeah, it yeah. was really terrible. And and those, I think, those of the baby boomer generation who who were involved in this shaming um, feel very ashamed of sure. having behaved that way. I certainly do. Yeah, you know. No, I mean, isn't that interesting? So, but you call it weaponized. It's, it's we're using the shame to actually not just maybe correct and get people to kind of shift toward a societal norm or whatever. We're using it to harm someone. That's right. And the reason why we want to harm those people is because we need to manage our own shame. Interesting. So we shame because we, we have shame. Right. We displace the shame onto the victim, and then we beat up the victim as a way of getting rid of our shame. And this, of course brings us to scapegoating Yeah, where we do, it in, we do it in groups and we do it as society, as culture. Interesting. And, uh, yeah, we do it all the time, don't we? Like I, hear, I see that all the time with my clients where a, a partner that's been cheating on their spouse, you know, turns it back on their spouse and blames their spouse for being a bad spouse. Oh, yeah, that's human nature. Yeah. That goes constantly. 
Um, we love to blame other people. And as a culture, we have groups who are very easily shamed. Uh -huh. and, those are, and those are the people we pick on. So in a marriage, uh, it's, the, it's the other person. Um, as a culture, it could be uh, blacks yeah. in America. Which, Ho uh, homosexuals. And gay. Yeah. Gay. I mean, that's so, so true, isn't it? And then... Yeah, and then and some of that just made. I mean, and it's interesting too because it could be a very religious-minded person that shames the gay person, and yeah. yet the religious-minded person should still be loving and caring and understanding and forgiving, and yet we also can become. And and by the way, and then it can reverse right. And with this new legislation, we now see, uh, you know, religious people feeling like they're now being shamed for having religious values. It's it's really a tool we, we don't even pay attention to, but we could end up doing a lot of harm with. There are two groups who pay attention to it, and these are the two groups that I that a lot of my research, uh, some of my research is based on. And the groups are prisoners and also alcoholics. Hmm. So really the first useful definition of shame work that you find is in the works of, oh God, come on, what's his name? The guy who wrote... Uh, John Bradshaw. Okay. John Bradshaw. John Bradshaw. Yeah, who literally writes about toxic and healthy shaming uh, and alcoholism. Hmm. Um, Donald Nathanson, uh, talking about shame management, calls this uh, avoidance and, uh, and sees alcoholism as a form of avoidance of hmm. shame. They're, just, they're they, just medicating their shame. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. Exactly, meditating their shame. And I think the way it's managed in AA by uh, publicly telling the stories, the shaming stories, you know, about how they ran over the dog. Yeah. You know, were uh, oblivious to their children is a way of managing the shame because everyone, you know, the thing that people do in AA is they all say, after you finish telling this hair-raising story about your, uh, about your adventures, everyone says, Thank you, Bill. You know that's right. Yeah, yeah. Non-judgmental, accepting audience, and that's the benefit, I guess. And we we got to take a break, and we'll come back and get to this. But that is the benefit of if you share what you have shame. So instead of using your shame to be punitive and beat up someone else, and you know, and then shame them, I guess if we can voice our shame, then our then we I don't need to. I, I, a, it'll probably dissipate my shame because I'm no longer holding on to it. I'm just owning that I killed the dog, I or I I'm an alcoholic or I. I mean, it's it's powerful if we can just let our own shames go instead of you know weaponizing them and beating everyone else up around us. Interesting nice. stuff. I mean, it really is. I, I love this topic, and I'm so glad you're with us, Doctor Jonathan Fast is joining us. Teaching us about shame, folks. And again, this is everybody. We all, this is a natural human instinct and tendency. So be thinking about it. Do you tend to use shame in how you discipline your family, your kids, in how you, in how you try to motivate people? We'll learn more about it when we come back. More with Dr. Fast right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Tan. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're listening to an interview with Jonathan Fast, and he gave us a lot of great insights this past segment. He talked about why our society even believes in shaming and what shaming entails. But interestingly enough, he also said that shaming isn't always necessarily bad. Sometimes it's a corrective tool that helps to shape society and keep people in line. For example, public prisons. That is a form of shaming that society has deemed necessary to keep one another safe. But then there is this idea of toxic shaming and weaponized shaming, where you sometimes let your own insecurities and your own shames justify mistreatment to others, and you use it as a weapon to motivate others, which leads to really harmful effects. In this next segment, Jonathan goes a little deeper into what those effects might be and what some healthy ways of dealing with shame might be to break this cycle of bullying, violence, 
and even suicide. Talk to us when you, a little bit more about how this kind of cycle of shame where I, because of the shame and the guilt I might feel, I end up kind of attacking or shaming others. How does that end up turning into bullying and violence and and how does it end up even into, I guess, even to suicide? Um, okay, so if you have, let's take a case of a parent um, who is very aggressive with his son, um, who, who beats his son and is constantly critiquing him and also modeling a kind of uh, problem solving that involves physical violence. Um, so the son that wants desperately to use his father as a model for who he wants to be when he grows up. Um, so he has to find someone as a victim where he can do the same thing and also displace the shame he's feeling because he is ashamed of having a father like this. Hmm. But at the same time, he, is in, he has imprinted from him like we all do from our parents, both good and bad. Yeah. Um, so he becomes a bully at school. The real problem comes, when, and this is often the kind of person who goes on to commit crimes and to become a, a criminal um, more often than not. And that, that sounds kind of amazing, but there's good research from Dan Olwes, who's the authority on bullying, and also from a huge Finnish research project called the, the Boy to Man Project, um, which had like 110,000 uh, people involved in it. Wow, and um, they do more frequently become criminals. But these, um, so what happens is they they are ashamed of having a father like this, and they want to displace the shame, and they find someone. The problem occurs when they find someone who processes their shame by turning it against themselves. So you've got two way dysfunctional ways of dealing with shame. The bully is attack other. Yeah, that's kind of yeah. Take take my shame out, huh? Take it outward. And then and then there are people who are victims who internalize their shame. And I know, as therapists, we all learn don't blame the victim. Right. But it's not really blaming the victim, but it's more like recognizing people who who make convenient victims who turn the shame inward. And when you get this kind of combination going, that's when you have really terrible things happen. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So 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 one of the things that might lead a person to be more likely to be bullied than mm-hmm. would be if they're one that is going to turn their shame inward. Yeah. And so they might be more they might be picked on more because they're not going to just come out and start taking it out on you. They'll just turn it in and go quiet. Right. And this is this is very common among gay teenagers. Hmm. For obvious reasons, yeah, I think for obvious reasons, um, they turn. They tend to turn their shame inward because they can't talk about it, and they have no no easily available role models. Although things are better now than they were ten years ago. Sure. Well, I mean, it's interesting, but they but gay teens do commit suicide. In one of your articles, I read four times as frequently as straight teens. Right. That was one of the things that made me curious about this. Yeah. And, of course, kids who are severely bullied also tend to commit suicide occasionally. Huh. It really – and it, it's interesting. So it really is just about what we do with the feelings that we have where we feel like we're less than, that we're not good, that we're we're not worth anything. That shameful feeling – has to be dealt with and we can kind of we either got it we either have to kind of get it out or we hold it in getting it out might turn us into a bully that's the unhealthy way out uh turning it in might make us you know be more oppressed by a bully um what's another healthy way to get it out of us i guess like you were saying earlier is just talk about it right. talk about really your shame the healthiest way of dealing with it is talking about it and this is something that we've known for centuries, and this is where the Catholic tradition of, um, of confession comes from, and also the Jewish tradition of uh, Yom Kippur, where the sins are, are placed on, on the goat in ancient times. We don't have too many goats around these yeah. days. The sins are placed on the goat, and the goat was sent out of the village. That's right, scapegoated. That's where the expression of scapegoat comes from. 
But those were both ways of dealing with the shame. Um, now, sometimes confession has become more ceremonial than really active. When people go to their shrinks and they talk about their shame, and that's, that's curative too. Although, a strange thing is that people tend not to discuss their shame with their therapist. All right. It's yeah. too shameful. I mean, because that I call that that that's the that's the dueling commitment. We always end up talking about something else, but deep, mm-hmm. deep down, there's the other thing. There's the other thing they're more committed to, which is not not relinquishing that private shame. That's right. It's very uncommon for them to talk about it in therapy. But what is more common is to talk about it with a wife or with a loved one, um, or uh, some people fantasize violence which is probably not as effective. Um, talking about it with a group, I think, is even even more powerful. Yeah. Although group therapy is, I don't know, it's not highly valued in our society yeah. as much as individual therapy, which is a mistake, I think. Well, it's interesting because it has, it really, like in AA, there is, there is some therapeutic, amazing therapeutic, you know, uh, release that comes just from being able to go to the group and own your crud for the day. Right, or just listen to other people whose crud is very similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess because yeah, and but the real idea too, I guess, is if we can just if we can say it, it has less hold on us. Right. Exactly. Exactly. If you can, but also you you have to recognize it, and that's where we run into trouble because we have a society where the admission of shame is the admission of weakness, uh-huh. and none of us want to appear weak. Yeah. I mean, and we do that in our. So one of the keys, I guess, as just a citizen, we need to be able to let people tell their their shame without being, you know, destroyed. Or and all, and even in our marriages, we've got to make it safe for people to share their shame. If they're not safe, they won't share it. And right. if and if they know they need to share it, I mean, I, I have a lot of people that. They just don't, yeah, like you were saying earlier, they just don't want to share this. This is, they think this is their one way ticket to complete abandonment if they share it. As you probably know, as a, are you a couples therapist? No, I, I, no, we just do like uh, skill building relationship coaching. Uh huh. Yeah. But if you deal with couples, I mean, you yeah. know, the, the point they come to therapy is the point where they're no longer sharing things into the Exactly. Therapy. So, um, but what we can do as therapists is we can, I mean, a technique that I found very valuable is I ask them to recognize micro-shaming events, Hmm. these tiny little events that we get every day that make us feel bad about ourselves. And once you start doing that, you realize that there are a great many of these events. I mean, every time you watch a TV commercial that depicts a person who is similar to yourself, who is in your group who looks better than you do, um, who's funnier than you are, who has uh, better skin than you have or nicer hair, it's sort of a micro-shaming event. And our whole advertising industry is based on this. So there's a lot of micro-shaming coming at us from every direction. And, uh, you know, we sort of develop a thick skin about it, but it's still there. Yeah. And then once you can recognize those, then it's a little easier to recognize the big shame events like getting fired from a job or you know or your spouse leaving you which are really life-shattering events you bet yeah it seems like those micro shaming events too end up being you know the catalyst of just these kind of day-to-day little fights or these day-to-day little moments where okay i feel shame because i just watched that commercial and now i'm gonna you know yell at my kid yeah, or buy the product. Or go, or yeah, or go buy the product. Yeah, be compelled to buy the product. Yeah, I mean there, are, and you know there are people who feel that they can lose weight by buying dieting books. Yeah, <laughs> so it's a little bit magical. That's it. You know what? I felt like I could run a marathon just if I had the right shoes. <laughs> really? <laughs> Amazingly, it didn't help because you have to wear them, and then you got to run. Yeah. Yeah, the running is the hard part. It, it, it's such a subtle thing, isn't it? Because if you if you're sitting talking to somebody at a dinner party, and they're they're not even bragging, they're just saying something they did. You right there could immediately have a sense of shame, like, yeah, well, I you know I watched 19 Netflix episodes, and right. you We're wrote talking. a book, La Di Da. Yeah. Um, Marx has a, a famous quote about how a man feels fine about his home until a person next door builds a mansion. 
It's true. And after that, I'll never again feel comfortable with this home. It's true. We're so comparative. I guess that's just we want to be in, don't we? Comparatively, we want to be in. Yeah. So talking so you maybe we should summarize ways of dealing yeah, with Yeah, let's talk about how we handle it. Okay, so there are the dysfunctional ways. And those include hiding, avoiding, which is, includes drugs and stuff. Hiding might be things like people who are afraid of leaving home. Yeah. Um, attacking others, which you know involves bullying or or random acts of violence, uh, and uh, and attacking yourself, which could be cutting or suicide attempts, or actually committing suicide. So I like to consider all of those dysfunctional. Yeah. Better, a better solution is telling someone you love about it or talking about it, recognizing it, and talking about it yourself using self-talk. Or um, what was the last one? Hmm. I don't know. That'll, that'll do for that. It'll come to me in a minute. But talking to others, I guess, too, that means when somebody, you know, when you, see, when you see some of these behaviors, somebody staying home a lot, somebody, you know, getting into drugs or acting out violently or cutting or, or you see signs of suicide, we, I guess we just try to open up a discussion where they can be safe and share their pain. Right. And we also have to remember that this kind of change – you know, often the amount of shame that drives a person to being suicidal is a lot that's been going on for years. Yeah. And we have to remember that we're not going to change this in the space of one session or <laughs> even in the space of the 12 sessions allotted to us by insurance companies. Right. It's going to take a long time. Well, especially but, because it triggers, if it's triggering kind of in micro moments many times a day, it, it probably needs to be vented in micro moments regularly. Well, maybe. That's an interesting idea. And you see this particularly with racial minorities. I mean, African-Americans yeah. talk about, about getting this constant shaming during the day, these very subtle put-downs, um, more than white people do. Yeah, people looking at them weird and, it's, you know, like yeah. they're strange or feared, they're afraid of them. Or... Yeah, a friend of ours who's uh, 18, who's uh, adopted from a Mexican family and looks extremely Mexican, but belongs to this very wealthy family, um, just told me about going into a, into a fancy store, and, which I won't name, and being followed mm. through the aisles. Yeah. And how embarrassing, how deeply shaming that Sure. I mean, isn't that interesting? So, so societally, we build these, you know, they would just call that risk management in the corporate world. We're just managing our risk. Well, no, you're, you're, out, you're shaming. You're weaponizing. Yeah, but as long as we don't call it shame, we feel stronger. So that's why, I mean, domestic violence is bullying, right? Yeah. yeah. Racism is bullying, but we have all these other, all these euphemisms for it, right. which is one, one way we keep it hidden. It's yeah. One of it's one of society's deepest secrets. And, and yet, and yet we're, and this is why we we still end up being surprised when a Ferguson breaks out or a Baltimore breaks out, which is. It's just it's the it's the culmination of shame, you know, magnified, right? It's just the explosion of being sick of that. Yeah. Now I'm wondering about Dale Cox, who's the uh, prosecutor in uh, Caddo, Paris, in Louisiana. They had an article about him in the Times yesterday that said that he wanted to send more people. Um, he wanted more people to be executed, and he's had the responsible for the largest number of executions in the last uh, decade, I suppose. Yeah. And I wonder if that's a version of a mass murder. Mm. And I hope I don't get into trouble for saying that. Well, yeah, but I mean, it's, but I guess it's, whatever it is, it's, it it might be a response. It's violence, right? It's, it's attacking. It, It is. And, you know, but but it's justified. What they do is, and we justify it, right? Yeah. People then justify it in their, in the language that would fit the community. Right. Yeah. Right. That, but that, that's the, the school, subtlety. The school shooters also try to justify their their shootings. They almost always leave some kind of document or manifesto mm. explaining why they did it, and they're all none of them are very convincing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Always, I, the, always I guess the, I guess that's the big key to this. As as we as we wrap up, 
Um, Jonathan, what would you say? What would you say is the one thing we need to remember when it just comes to shaming and what just the average citizen can do? I can't necessarily do anything about the Louisiana guy, but what can I make sure I'm doing in my world, in my circle of influence, to make sure I'm trying to mitigate my shaming tendencies? Right. Well, we can be kind and supportive to other people and and be civil and not treat people who are different from us. You know, I sound like a, like a Sunday school teacher. Yeah, you sound like a pastor. Yeah. But, uh, but it's true. I mean, it's just... That's what we can do. Yeah. And, 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 and let people belong, you know, and feel safe and belonging, even if they're different. Yes, absolutely. Especially if they're different. Yeah, especially if they're different. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you, Doctor. Uh, Doctor Jonathan Fast, really uh, an important, I think, lesson for all of us. And it's very technical, right? Shame's complicated. And so, I mean, even to give it 30 minutes like we did, it's just not enough time. But uh, you might want to go check out the book, Beyond Bullying, Breaking the Cycle of Shame, Bullying, and Violence by Dr. Jonathan Fast. We so appreciate him. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We just finished an interview with Jonathan Fast about shaming and bullying. He said there are two dysfunctional ways that people end up dealing with shame. Bullying, which is just sharing your shame with others, or self-harm, which is internalizing all of these shameful messages, which often eventually leads to suicide. And when I say bullying, we often think of like, Big, pompous, powerful people picking on little underdogs. But really, bullies come in a lot of different unsuspecting forms. So maybe you've had to deal with being bullied by an older brother or an upperclassman or even a parent. But what about by your kids? It's probably not your first thought, but some kids really do know how to be cruel to their parents. They don't ever gain respect, and maybe they're caught up in a cycle of shaming and bullying from their parents. So we're going to address this in our next interview with Sean Grover. He teaches us why kids are asserting this power role over their parents and the importance of having limitations for kids. He joins us from New York City to teach us how to reassert our roles as parents. Uh, Sean, thank you so much for being with us. Appreciate this topic. Thank you so much, Matt, for having me on. Good to be with you. You, um, you truly have—you've uh, hit a nerve here. It seems like uh, you, as a as a counselor and a psychotherapist, you had a lot of parents coming into your office complaining that their kids are owning them, taking over. Um, is this? Are you seeing more and more of this today? Boy, I thought it was a, a small population here in Manhattan, but it's everywhere I go. Parents are confessing and opening up. I was speaking up at a school uptown uh, last night, and I asked how many parents uh, let, you know, experience this kind of thing, and, and they shamefully raise their hands and look away. I, it's just unbelievable. I, did you ever do that to your parents? <sighs> I don't think so. Mine, I, just, I realize if I just treat them really nice and, and stay busy, they won't bug me. Then I would just do everything behind their backs. <laughs> it was pretty smart psychology. That's good. Or maybe a, a red boar light would be exactly. helpful if a kid comes at you. Exactly. That's what you need. So when you look at this, Sean, and in your book you talk about it, what, what's going on with this? Why are kids why, – why are, why are we giving them so much power? Why are they – and how, you know, why are they taking over the role? Well, I, I, you know, nature puts parents and kids on a collision course, right? You have to do things your kids don't want to do. So if you, if you look at like when they're learning to walk, as soon as they learn to walk, what happens? They don't want to hold your hand. They want to yeah, run. They got to be free. As soon as they feed themselves, you can't feed them anymore. So there's always this conflict. So that has not really changed. Kids sort of push back. We're calling it bully here, but it's really pushing back against the sense of being controlled. What's changed, uh, what I've seen, I really feel it's a backlash against authoritarian parenting of the past. Hmm. So if you had a, a parent that was a real tyrant, 
you made a vow in your childhood that I am never going to be like that person. So what happens, a lot of parents go so far the other direction where they're too accommodating, too generous, too giving, and they don't set any limits. Hmm. Uh, you see this in public often. It's, it's hard to avert your eyes with yeah. some of these meltdowns. So really, it's, it's kind of, it's just echoes from the past. I'm trying to not parent the way I was parented, but I might be, so if we had a lot of authoritarian parents uh, back in the day, then we now might be more likely to be kind of too loose, too free, wanting to be our kids' friends, not their parents. That's certainly, you know, one of the cases. I think the other case would be the, uh, if you grew up with an absent parent or a neglectful parent, where you really didn't have a parenting model to internalize. So uh, now you're a parent, you have no access to how to do that because there's this empty space. So what happens in those situations, children want leadership, they crave leadership, the parent doesn't provide it, and they start to defer parenting decisions to the child. What do you think? Do you want to do that? Uh, I don't know. What do you think? And they keep deferring until the child begins to feel more powerful than the parent. Hmm. Now you have this imbalance that just starts to turn the whole family upside down. Oh, and you do see it. And I mean, I guess part of this is, and you bring it up in your article that was on psychology today, uh, parents, their places are in the right heart. I mean, their heart, their, their heart <laughs> is in the right place. They just don't, it's almost like they don't know that they have, that they're part of this problem. That's right. Well, the amazing thing about parents, I go out and do workshops all over the city and in the area, and I, I ask, how many of your parents went to parenting workshops? How many of your parents stayed up late to come to a school and listen to someone talk about parenting? It just didn't happen. So on one hand, parenting used to be just a check on a list on your way to adulthood. Now I'm a parent. Let's continue on. But people are really starting to examine it and question their choices. And I think that that's really powerful. Hmm. No, I do too. I mean, especially because the information is there uh, in your book and and in other places. It's I guess part of this is just being aware enough to realize I can do something different here. I don't just have to be bullied. That's right. I mean, the, the bullying or the mistreatment is just a symptom of an imbalance. So the way I like to think of it, when that thing happens, rather than uh, if you take the position like I have to fix my kid, how do I fix my kid? You got a long labyrinth <laughs> to work your way through. But if you say something like something's missing, something's missing here. What am I? What could I do differently? It's amazing when the parenting model shifts. The change you see in the child is uh, is much faster. Is it, I mean, and I guess it would be hard to make sure you don't swing back to authoritarian or, you know, back to uh, neglectful again, (laughs) like just ignoring your child. You really want to swing to the middle. That's right. You want to swing to the middle and you have to realize that every family has its own culture. So uh, how you parent is going to be very unique to your personality and personality of your children. So it's very hard to create a one-size-fits-all in terms of parenting. We can have some basic guidelines, but we really want to honor and question what kind of culture do you want to have in your family? What's the philosophy driving your family? That's much easier to intervene at that level mm. than, again, trying to come down on the children. And and the kids need this too, right? This isn't just for you to parent better. I mean, the kids want you to not – they don't want to be – abusive. They don't want to be mean. They don't want to take advantage oh, of you. Yeah. They, they want you to be healthy. Absolutely. They, if a child abuses their parents, their self-esteem is going to plummet. No child wants a parent they can kick around. They internalize their parent. So if the parent doesn't have backbone, they become more and more aggressive toward the parent. Um, so they will actually push until a limit is set. You know, I was running an adolescent group once, and uh, there was a young man in the group who didn't have any limits. He was out all night. He was only 15, mm. all over the city. And one week he didn't come. And uh, all the other boys, teenagers, were saying, oh, what a life this kid has. I wish I had that. So I said to them, how about I talk to your parents and get you his life? I get them to agree to all those freedoms for you. And they became outraged. My parents would never do that. And we argued about it. And I said, why not? 
And one quiet girl raised her hand and said, because my parents love me. Mm. So the idea that limits are not punishment, these are necessary psychological requirements. Kids can't control themselves naturally. They need to be a little bit afraid of their parents. So they have a mindful pause before they're going to do something destructive. If they don't have those limits and parents don't step up, then they're going to be much more impulsive, much more destructive, and carry that kind of behavior into their adult relationships. Mm. So this has repercussions far beyond adolescence or childhood. And, and yeah, and, and these are also fairly typical behavioral, you know, kind of developmental stages, right? I mean, kids need they're, they're going to rebel at certain stages. They're going to push the limits at certain stages. They're going to want to not have you controlling them at certain stages. That's right. And you want a little defiance. You want your child to be a little defiant. This way they're asserting themselves, they're defining themselves. Uh, If they're too compliant and too accommodating to you, you're more likely going to see a child that lacks self-confidence. So they may be, uh, you may feel great about having such an agreeable child, but out in the world they may really struggle to have a voice. Mm. Boy, when they need it most, huh? Absolutely, especially in adolescence. That's a big deal. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Sean Grover about uh, his book, When Kids Call the Shots, How to Seize Control from Your Darling Bully and Enjoy Parenting Again. Great insights on how to uh, how to create a relationship of, I guess, more respect, but also what the kids need. Create a true blue parenting relationship where uh, all the benefits, the fruits can come from that. We'll continue the discussion after the break. More with Sean Grover. Just a minute. back with the rest of today's Matt Townsend episode. We're listening to Sean Grover teach us how to stop getting bullied by your kids. In the last segment, he said that you need to find the happy medium in parenting. Being a tyrant can turn your kids into fearful people or rebellious tyrants themselves. But having no boundaries at all and being a pushover turns them into bullies who can manipulate you to get what they want. And I really liked what he said, limits aren't punishments for kids. They are necessary psychological needs for development. And so it's one of the responsibilities of parenthood. So let's finish up today's discussion by listening to the rest of this interview, where Sean tells us how we can seize that control back. He joins us from New York City, where he teaches classes, parenting classes, and he helps people, I guess, regain the reins of uh, the parent-child relationship. Is that what you do, Sean? Absolutely. And I think as I get older, I'm getting more and more impatient with parents that are, are resistant to it. They'll often, uh, they, they kind of be sound, start to sound very whiny to me, like, yeah. I don't know what to do. Or, and I'll say, well, <laughs> who's paying for the cell phone? Who's paying for all these gadgets? What, what they, the kids are really, it goes beyond spoiling, because spoiling, you basically have a kid that's annoying or obnoxious. But this kind of situation, you have a kid who's overly aggressive. And that's going to infect all his relationships. Well, and yeah, that's not going to go well in life. That, oh, no. That will, that will come back to haunt them, and then it will eventually come back to haunt you. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's funny. I've been doing this a long time, and uh, I, had a, I see this often. Kids will uh, come back and visit me as adults. And a young man came in. He's early 20s, and he brought his girlfriend because they're having problems. I sat in my chair shocked that he was talking to her and yelling at her the way I heard him 15 years ago Mm. yell at his mother. So nothing was done at that point. And so here we are as an adult. This is how you treat women. Wow. Handed down. So what do we do? How do we, um, you know, seize control again from the darling bully? All right. Well, first, uh, we're going to look at bullying as an imbalance, right? So, I I usually go through a five-point checklist, which is uh, the first point would be tension outlets. Does a child have enough physical activity? And a cardio workout three times a week, 30 minutes, will cut anxiety and depression by 80% Hmm. in kids. So if that kid's anxious or uptight, 
he's holding all that tension in his body. He's going to be more impatient, less flexible, and more aggressive. So first thing, are they moving? Uh, second thing would be, is there enough structure in the household? What's family communication like? Do they have family meetings? Third thing we want to look at is models and mentors. That's the express lane to getting a kid on track. I've seen kids go from being drug dealers to ballet dancers because a mentor came into their life. Hmm. Fourth thing we want to look at is then learning diagnostics. A lot of these disruptive behaviors can be traced back to under-the-radar learning disabilities like processing, auditory functioning, etc. Once we check all of those, those lists off, then we're going to take a look at the parent, take a look at their marriage. I can't tell you how many parents, kids have told me the secrets they've shared Hmm. Uh, about the other parent. Yeah. So uh, what a nightmare. What oh. a nightmare. So it's interesting. So the, the parent's marriage is a gauge of, of what the kid's going through. Yeah. And, you know, they come to therapy because they, they want the kid fixed instead of, like, dropping the car off. Right. And they, they're in for a big surprise. Last year I had this young man. I said, you know, if you want to have a meeting with your parents – we can always do that, and I'll, I'll help you, you know, express things that you're worried about. And he got very excited, and uh, parents came in, sat on the couch opposite him, and they said, okay, we'd like to talk about him doing his homework. And this young man, barely 17 years old, said, we're not talking about that. We're talking about you guys. I know you hate each other. Wow. Oh, my God. I almost fell. Yeah. I didn't even see that coming. But there was so much tension in that house psychic tension that sort of erupts in children that they, they can't tolerate it. And so they become super aggressive. So we really want to look, again, we have this symptom, where could it be generating from? Often, hmm. it's a disagreement between the parents or uh, tension between our two different parenting styles. So we have to do a, a full overhaul if we're going to be effective. But look what you just did. I mean, right there, you listed about, I don't know, eight things that the list you can run them through, but each one of those opens up an entire new category of answers, of solutions, of problems that, that need to be evaluated. And yet parents sit there and say, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I mean, all they need, I guess, is the, is kind of the checklist. Let's, let's just start doing it as a professional would do it. I mean, are these in the book then? Um, yeah, the, the first half of the book is all worksheets for parents. And if you had, as we spoke of earlier, you know, a, a really aggressive or punishing parent, there's trauma there. Yeah. For So often when uh, a parent finds themselves on the receiving end of that same kind of aggression from their own child, they're no longer thinking like an adult. They're back in the child zone. Uh. Uh, and you can see a change in them. And I'll wonder, gosh, this person's a high-powered lawyer. Gee, they've got a thriving business. But somehow when their child comes at them, they revert back anymore. Yeah. yeah, they revert back to the five-year-old. That's right. And then the kid starts to actually parent the parent. Ugh. Complete and utter disaster. Well, and then has to hear the stories of what's going wrong with their parents because, uh, you know, these parents are tattling on each other. I mean, it gets – the systems get <laughs> – it gets convoluted. I mean, and then you can see why this, this gets handed down generation to generation. That's right. You know, I was coming through an airport, and uh, I saw this mother, I, I'm assuming she was a single mom, dragging about four or five suitcases, a backpack, two, two carry-ons, and two rolling suitcases, huffing and puffing. And who was walking behind her carrying nothing? Ugh. And then the mother was lost. These things happen in public. I nearly make a scene. My wife has to, you know. <laughs> relax, me, relax. Away. And then the, the, the daughter said, the mother says, oh, I don't know what gate we're at. And the daughter, who's about 13, her sister's about 12 or uh, 10, and she turns to her and says, wouldn't it be nice to have a real parent? Uh. And then the mother bursts out crying. It's like, that's going to help. <laughs> And I'm standing there with my wife is now pinning me to the floor. Yeah, you want to go tear uh, into this. I want to tear into that. It just it's oh. so. Um, I think I used to be uh, a little gentler when I was younger, but as I get older, well, you see I it just faster can't too. It. You, you, that's what I love about uh, people that are good at what they do is 
So if, if if parents don't have the answers, there's answers. Go find the help. Get this book, for example, Sean. But but there's there's people that can see through this a lot faster than they can. Get help. That's right. Well, yeah, parenting. This goes for me too. You don't get a pass because you're a therapist. No. Uh, I went through the book. Actually, was born of my own struggles because I felt the parenting books I read sometimes actually made me feel worse. Yeah. Because uh, I was like, who are these kids? How do people talk that way? That doesn't sound... I couldn't get the script out of my mouth. But I, I will tell you, I did have a big pushback moment recently with my 16-year-old, where she really stood up to me because I was a little snarky and I said mm. something rude. She put me in my place, and I got to tell you, I was so proud of her. That's awesome. I could never would have had the, the guts to do that with my own parents. But how and and but again, she wasn't that. There, she's not a bully. She's being mature. She's being mature. So we we established a lot of no fly zones. There's no cursing. There's no name calling. We're gonna. We all get frustrated with each other. We're gonna. This is how it works in our family. So that's good. That's why your family is gonna be different from your neighbor's family. You don't want to get involved in that. That's You're gonna great. Figure out parent. You know, consciously. What kind of family you want to have here? How, what kind of leadership you want to provide? Most parents are so busy either being burned out by the requirements of parenting or exhausted and giving in all the time. They don't really even have that thought, hey, I'm leading my own tribe. Mm. How, can I, how can I do this better? So that true. That is the express lane. So true. Love that advice, Sean. Great quote. Uh, when are you going to stop swatting at the flies and go and patch the screen? Sometimes we're too busy swatting. We're not doing enough patching. Sean Grover's his name. Go check out his book, When Kids Call the Shots, How to Seize Control from Your Darling Bully and Enjoy Parenting Again. Powerful stuff. Our families need it, folks. This country needs it. We need healthier, happier families. They are the, they are the institution that matters most on this earth. It's kind of crazy to think about kids bullying their parents. But you see it all the time, like we heard. I just I just thought that story of the girl yelling at her mom in public about how she wished she could have an actual parent and made her mom burst into tears was really sad. And I would think that that has a lot of underlying frustrations as well. There is two sides to it. I mean, I thought it was interesting how Dr. Grover pointed out that bullying is often a cycle. And parents who let their children bully them were often bullied growing up or victimized somehow. And they never learned how to deal with it or how to assert power. So when kids make demands, they go back to this child zone and then... Suddenly, the child has to become the parent. And I think that's one of the most frustrating things for a child. And they probably don't necessarily mean to bully their parents, but they're just trying to fill this role and responsibility that they're just not cut out for yet. And they sh- and a role that shouldn't be theirs yet. So I think we heard a lot of wise words today from our experts. And I think the main message is that no matter your age or your background or your size, Bullying, shaming, and violence is not okay. They create spirals and cycles of bad behavior that eventually lead to a culture of mistreatment and dysfunction. So let's do what we can today to end the cycle. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm Liana Tan. Join me again next time for another episode of Matt Townsend. Matt Townsend.